The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Linda House, the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I am sitting in as your guest host today um, for Kim Tebaldo, who will be with you next week. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are provided at more than 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and on telephone helpline at 1-888-793-9355. And I'm so excited to welcome back to the show today someone who has been with us previously, and we had such a good time that I... Uh, I sort of pinned him down to, to pro- have him promise to join us again, so our listeners are in for a treat today. And, you know, there are times when Kim and I just get to the end of an episode and we, uh, we're, we're just not finished uh, exploring the topic. And so we're so happy that um, Jonathan Sackner Bernstein, who is a, a, a physician, and um, we had we had at the time a Harvard freshman named Elena Simon, who initiated... Elena had initiated a study on a rare form of liver cancer when she was 12, and so we had this great conversation about innovation with the two of them on the show um, earlier, and just really felt like we needed to have you back, um, Jonathan, so thank you for, uh, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. I just want to mention that um, you have uh, incredible credentials behind you, so you are an engineer and a cardiologist. You are also internationally recognized as a clinical researchers, a researcher and expert in the development and regulation of medical products. You have also served as Associate Center Director for Technology and Innovation at the FDA's Center for Devices and Radiologic Health. And you also, when you were there, launched the Center's Innovation Initiative and the White House FDA Entrepreneurs in Residence Program. Um, you also initiated a relationship between FDA and DARPA, which is um, part of the Department of Defense. And you were recruited recently to provide scientific, technical, technical and engineering support to DARPA's new biologic technologies office. So that's a lot, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to explore um, each of those briefly. But um, can you just start with, with, given the background that I just mentioned about you, I'm curious to know, um, what do you think are the top three medical innovations of all times? That's a, that's a real interesting question. I guess that where I would start is, is thinking of the innovations that are having impact. There are, there are a lot of 
incredible technologies being developed right now that are helping us understand uh, our, our gene sequences, the human genome, and things along those lines that I think will eventually be positioned at the top of the list, but they haven't actually led to the kind of impact that I'd want to see if I'm going to be considering it one of the three tops. So I suppose that that, um, I would go with a list something along the lines of antibiotics, which were discovered in the late 1920s by accident by Alexander Fleming when, by chance, a mold landed on one of the culture dishes that he was preparing to study some bacteria. And fortunately, he paid attention and realized that that mold produced the antibiotic that we now know of as penicillin. So you've got millions of lives. My my second on the list, and I'm, I'm going to say these three are my three top. I don't mean to prioritize them within that group, but the second of the three would be the, the electric light. Uh, now, people may wonder why I would consider that a medical innovation, and it's for a couple reasons. First of all, imagine what would happen if you had to go for surgery and your doctor could only do it on a day when the sun was shining and um, do it early enough in the day so that the light could come in through the window so he or she could actually see what they were doing inside you. That would be pretty frightening. It's, it's only been the last century where the electric light made its way into the operating room. Um, and, and I think that it, it also represents one of the ways great innovations come to be is that they come from one field and get applied in another. The light bulb was not developed for the surgeon. And then the third one would uh, be the group of tech uh, inventions that allow us as doctors to see inside people without cutting people open. So. Uh, an ultrasound, a simple x-ray, a CAT scan, an MRI, a PET scan. These are incredible innovations that allow us to understand what's best for a person as well as how a disease needs to be treated in general. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's so interesting because so many of those innovations you know, have been established and developed by chance um, and, ju- and just by people thinking of things differently, you know, outside of the box kind of thinking that I know that we're going to get into in just a little while. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how the process has changed from someone having an idea or experiencing chance to really bringing it to the bedside. Well, what's happened is a, a, a whole series of changes in in the world. Um, it's one thing to have an idea or recognize the possibility of a penicillin, but let's keep in mind that Fleming made his discovery in 1928. It wasn't until the late 1940s when people were being treated by penicillin, so you got 20 years. People, uh, I amongst them, complain about how long it takes a drug to the, to get to the market, which is estimated to be seven to ten years. And certainly, you'd want it as fast as possible, but you also want to make sure it's a it's a therapy that's going to help, not hurt. So we're improving. Over the last century, we've cut it by a half to two thirds the amount of time it takes. Um, on the other hand, there are people who come up with ideas that because they're treating a very, very dangerous uh, situation, might be able to move a little bit faster because for a high-risk situation, um, say um, uh, advanced pancreatic cancer where the prognosis is measured in weeks to months, it may be reasonable to to move faster with something that has some risk than for treating um, basically a benign skin cancer 
would warrant. So it really varies depending upon where you're where you're aiming. Um, but it generally starts with somebody having an idea, somebody uh, with enough experience and wisdom to recognize that their idea has potential, and then who either herself or himself has the skills or knows how to partner with others who have expertise in executing on the investigation, executing on the studies, executing on the development. Um, and you get all those skills together, uh, the experience, the open-mindedness, the ability to, to actually make stuff happen, and then you've got a good chance to get that idea into the hands of people to have impact. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you think about getting that, that idea in the hands of people to make impact, um, do you feel like new ideas are generally welcomed by the medical and regulatory community? Does it depend on the disease or the person who is supportive? How does that all work? Well, this gets into some issues that I think could become a whole separate line of, of a conversation, so I'll try to make sure I don't go too far afield. But I think that what most people are able to recognize, and certainly the, the lay press covers extremely well, is when uh, investigators, whether they be people in the laboratory or people treating patients, have financial relationships to companies um, and, and how that could sway decision-making. Let's, let's be realistic. The, the human nature is human nature. When there are incentives, people respond to incentives. So there's, there's certainly a need to be aware of those kinds of relationships that potentially could bias people or create conflicts. On the other hand, if someone comes to the field with a brand new idea that is completely different than all the academics are pursuing, and the academics have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of grants of research support from government agencies focused on the old model, you could see why human nature would also say that 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 establishment would not be so welcoming of the radical new idea. And and there are certainly many examples, and and I don't think we pay enough attention to that kind of academic conflict of interest that also can be a problem. So um, great change is rarely welcomed by the community that it's changing because it's a threat, and people generally don't like change and don't like threats. So I think novel ideas do have trouble making their way to the patient. Mm. And, and I'd love to get your feedback on um, if, if, if you're the patient, how do you feel about that? Well, it, uh, hopefully incredibly frustrated uh, yeah. to the point where the patients can organize and act about it. And um, work either individually or through organizations, and we can certainly talk about that some more, to affect how how um, funding works, how regulations and laws are written by Congress, um, and making sure that, that their expectations and needs are heard. The FDA, as one organization, has invested a lot of energy over the last few years to um, understand better what it is that patients want so that they can prioritize what they're working on better. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so talk to us about this concept of disruptive innovation. Um, who drives it? What is it? So disruptive innovation is a term that, that ended up being popularized over the last 10, 12 years, largely um, out of a group um, at, at Harvard Business School. Mark Johnson and Clayton Christensen brought forward this idea in a, in a, in a format that extended beyond the business world to 
the, the 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 lay press certainly to the medical community and 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 it's written about in their book called the the innovator's dilemma which is that if you have something that is a um, that represents a, an innovation that can really change the landscape typically the established forces companies people are not going to be happy because they've built their model on the old version and so it becomes very threatening and so the idea of a disruption disruptive innovation is something that comes from an area that wasn't anticipated by the establishment and serves to change the way things are done. So in, in common terms, you can find all sorts of Internet-based examples of that, what Amazon did to uh, a whole host of, of bricks-and-mortar bookstores and is affecting Barnes & Noble right now, what it's trying to do to consumer goods. These are new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking about things that that transform a field, that transform the way people act. And that's felt in medicine as well. When uh, MRI scans first are launched, nobody really knows what to do with them. But within a few years, the, the, the idea that a patient would undergo an exploratory surgery has almost disappeared uh, because exploratory surgery, with all its risk, was replaced by having a non-invasive set of pictures taken. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very popular label to use and and target that people believe is the only way to make a difference. But you can make a difference without having to transform a whole field. I mean, you, we all know here that you can make a difference merely by changing the way somebody's um, life experience unfolds. You don't you don't have to change a whole field to affect a whole generation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and, I, and I'd like to think um, some of the work that we're doing with our Cancer Experience Registry and the information uh, that it'll be providing people as they think about innovative new approaches to patient care will be a, be a, a theater into potentially a new disruptive innovation on the, on the positive side. We have to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to continue this great conversation on innovation with Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein about innovation in medical care by taking a look at efforts to spur and foster innovation specifically. So please come back right after this break for more. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, 
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and ASI, as well as Onyx, a subsidiary of Amgen. I am Linda House. I am the guest host today, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, the president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, who will be with you next week. Today, we're talking about innovation with Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. Dr. Sackner-Bernstein served as Associate Center Director for Technology and Innovation at the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration's Center for Devices and Radiological Health, where he launched the Center's Innovation Initiative and the White House FDA Entrepreneurs in Residence Program. So our conversation for the previous segment and the rest of the segments will be all about innovation, very exciting and energizing. And Jonathan... What, what do you think is the ideal environment for fostering innovation? When, when I was starting in my career, um, I kept hearing things that were basically telling me the way to make a difference was when you were young, um, that you needed to get a group of, of youngsters. You know, recent, at that point, of course, it was recent college graduate because it wasn't as cool back then. Uh, to consider the idea that you would skip college, but so maybe now it's even would be a younger crowd getting together, seeing a problem, and being able to figure it out because we were bright and we were at our peak intellectually, and and much of that came off of statements. Uh, such as those that were made famous by Albert Einstein when early in his career he said that if he didn't if a person didn't make a contribution to his field by the age of 30 he would not um, and so we've gotten uh, into a point where everybody thinks that the answer to this question is you get a bunch of young facebook types together and they come up with a solution what's really problematic about that view of creating innovation is that it is wrong. Einstein is wrong. Um, People who believe that the young are the ones who are going to come up with the innovations that make a difference, they are wrong. I can say this with great conviction because there's data that say that it's not the young who are successful. It's not the young who have impact. It's not the young who are the key innovators. It's actually people who are older. Age is an advantage. Experience and wisdom are advantages. Um, I, I actually gave this um, premise a little bit more uh, uh, background than I can than we can do in the talk. I was gave a talk this last week at a TEDx conference in Brussels, 
where that was basically the premise. And I presented the data, showed Einstein was wrong, showed Glad- Malcolm Gladwell's views are wrong. So I would say that the way to foster innovation, especially when it comes to something complicated like healthcare, is to get people together who have experience, who know how to work on teams, who know how to execute, who are wise and have age as their advantage. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, so, so speak to that as, as it relates to healthcare versus other industries. Uh, and, and maybe you can you know, say more about your TED Talk and whether you address that in your TED Talk. Um, well, I think that if you look at, at healthcare, it's got the complexities of any of the tech fields, and then it also has the added layer and complexity of any regulated field. So imagine the difficulty of coming up with an innovation in aviation added to the challenges of coming up with an innovation in technology, IT systems. That's what you're facing in healthcare. So I think that it's an area that requires even greater degree of experience and wisdom. Um, and in my TED Talk, and it's, uh, you can Google TEDx Brussels, uh, which was where the meeting was, and, and the talk is called It's Not Too Late to Make a Difference. Um, what I do is present the data that show that in, a, in, in any field, um, age is an advantage, and, and the idea that um, you can only do one before you're 30 is just wrong. Uh, and I think this has profound implications on a societal level because what that means is that we've basically been wasting in our society all of the experience and capacity of women who get off the career path to raise kids who are actually an untapped resource. And I touch on that a little bit in the talk as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And, and I just want to let our listeners know, we'll repeat that website so that they could uh, write it down. We'll repeat that towards the end of the show. So, you know, when you think about, um, when you think about this idea of, you know, the ideal environment and innovation and um, folks that just have, I, I would call them transferable skills, right? Being able to work in groups and teams and put the goal of the team first. And so I, th- I think about, um, I think about government and how some of our government agencies um, a- a- apply these type of concepts to innovations. And so let me give you some examples of grants that have been awarded um, through the NIH or Department of Energy's you know, the Department of Energy loan programs, you know, at the end of the day, is, is government, is it, is it too big to help or is it big enough to, to help? You know, it's, it's like asking me whether people are good or people are bad. Um, there's always a, an, outli- an outlier, an extreme case where a person is bad um, and, and overall people are good. I think that government programs overall are good, although there are always unintended consequences and potentially some places where they overreach. But I think that when you start to go further into the edge of what we know and what we don't know, um, and cancer is an example of that, there are very few places that can afford to take the risk and invest way out there on the extreme edge where the likelihood of succeeding with the goal that you have in mind is really small, mm-hmm. even though the likelihood of learning a ton that can eventually help either you develop something else or help others develop new products starts to become substantial. So there are, there are government organizations such as what I work with now, DARPA, 
within the Department of Defense that's known for taking the highest risk investments and really going uh, out after ideas that no one else is willing to invest in. So one of the projects that they launched while I was at the FDA was a way to speed drug development by figuring out if you could skip animal testing. And the way to do that, I mean, whether or not you're interested in the humanity part of that and the uh, cruelty part of that is a whole other issue, just from a scientific and efficiency point of view, would be to take human cells and grow them on a piece of glass. Uh, and grow them in a way that they eventually turn into kidney tissue or liver tissue and then test drugs on that engineered human kidney or engineered human liver. Um, And that's something that no company was willing to invest in in a big way because it was too risky and too big. The NIH, National Institutes of Health, and DARPA, um, both poured in large amounts of money to get that started, and there's progress being made. So there are programs like that that I think are really valuable, um, and they're going to fail when the government does the investing because they're higher risk. I think that's where the, the, the solar energy investments, um, the risk showed for the government in that when they failed, it became a political target instead of recognizing that that's part of why those investments and those loans are made. Mm-hmm. And then, um, what do you think about the what do you think about philanthropic organizations? I know there are a number of, of private um, public partnerships, and you know, are, are they well suited to do research and innovation? Some of them are incredibly well suited. Uh, there are others that I remember interacting with when I was at the FDA that seemed to be really good at building their own bureaucracy to essentially match up with the FDA's bureaucracy. So they could talk like bureaucrats on, on that aspect, but not necessarily delve into the new technology as well. And I think it's important when you're looking at different organizations to try to figure out whether they're, they're structured like you imagine a government agency or they're structured to foster ideas, uh, to run as a lean organization, to be facile and be able to, to react to new science in a positive way. Uh, that they're able to stop funding for projects that are clearly not going anywhere. And if they can do that, then I think they're extremely well-suited because they have the right kind of energy and focus and mission behind them to do so. And what about the private citizen? You know, we've heard a lot about uh, crowdsourcing and, and other ways that private citizens are getting funding to explore their their innovations. I, crowd, you, you asked before what can a person do, and I probably should have brought up crowdsourcing because I think that that's something that people can engage in that is a relatively uh, low-risk approach for an individual because you're not talking about investing $100,000 or $3 million. You're talking about investing $50,000, $100 in something that just might make the difference. So if you go back to the idea that the – uh, the establishment doesn't always love new ideas. There's a company, Scanadu, out in, in Silicon Valley that started with a crowdsourcing. Their premise was that medical information should be in the hands of people. Um, they started inspired by the idea that they would make a tricorder-like device as, as seen in Star Trek for most of us. Um, but that empowers people and moves the power away from the establishment. They were perfectly suited to get started with a, with a crowdsource approach um, and subsequently now, are, as they've made progress, are moving more conventionally. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we have a, a great story in cancer, in particular patients with multiple myeloma, where patients were able to identify um, a particular regimen where the the dose of steroid was high enough that it would cause a significant side effect. We're able to work with the drug company to uh, to change the clinical trial and lower that dose, and patients at the end had better outcomes, both disease outcomes and quality of life outcomes. I think it's a really uh, nice example for, for for our world anyway. Fantastic. Yeah. So do you think challenges and competitions are effective? So when you think about, you know, you win X prize for X innovation, do you think that that works? Well, there's, there's, I mean, the most recent example of that is the XPRIZE Foundation, which is an incredible organization because they combine both the vision to say, here's what we want to achieve, and then they've built a group, a team of people who, with experience, who are great in operations, who then help make sure that the, the competition actually comes off. So they've got both the creative and the practical. And, and you go back in history, way back to the 1500s, 1600s, when people couldn't figure out how to navigate across the ocean outside of sight of land, um, and prizes were offered that generated lots of interest, lots of innovation, and eventually solutions. I, I think history says prizes help solve big problems. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for that. And we have just got to go to a quick commercial break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We've only scratched the surface of this really important topic. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's show is sponsored in part by Lilly Oncology, Genentech, and Amgen. Please join us right after this break. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. 
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is all about innovation and really exciting. Um, I am Linda House. I am sitting in for Kim Tebaldo today as your guest host. Kim will be back with you next week. We are talking about innovation and medicine in particular with Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein, who is an engineer and also a cardiologist as well as a former senior FDA official. Jonathan, I don't think I know. Were you an engineer first or a cardiologist first? Engineer first. Engineer first. Great. It's a great background. Um, I know that I ask this question every time you're on the show, so please uh, forgive me for doing it again, but I think it's vitally important to many of our listeners. Um, you know, many who are holding on to the show and, 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 and listening in hopes that a new cancer treatment option will become available at some point in time. Can you break down the process um, for getting both a medication and a, and a device approved for patient use? You had mentioned that it takes many, many years, but what is that process? So just for for simplicity's sake, I'll use the, the terminology that's associated with drug development. It's also the same terminology for proteins, biologic cell therapies. It's, there's a different terminology for devices, but functionally speaking, it, it works out pretty much the same. The first thing that has to happen is that uh, the, the developers of the product need to do certain animal tests and lab tests to reassure themselves, um, the, the regulators, and any doc who's going to be participating as a treating physician, that the therapy makes sense, that it has a, a, a reasonable chance of having some benefit. It seems reasonably likely that it's not going to cause some other side effect. When that's that's figured out, and there are certain standard lessons that have been learned over the last decades where you have to look for things that drugs or as an example can do that are that are potentially toxic to people. You then apply to regulators, and this would be the same thing whether you're talking in the u s at the FDA or outside of the u s and when that that all those data are viewed as as sufficient and there are enough protections in place for the first patients, which means usually only a handful are treated in the first study, the FDA gives the authorization to do that first study. So it's referred to as a first in human, uh, the, the first phase one study. And in those early studies, relatively few people are treated. It could be 5, 10, 20, 30. Um, and a lot of information is gathered, which takes quite some time to figure out. You'll even, with a drug, give one dose, then wait a couple weeks, make sure everything's okay, then give a second dose a little higher to another group of people. Um, and, and it's done in a very deliberate fashion to make sure that the likelihood of harm is, is low. With cancer therapies, a lot of times those steps of several phase one trials are 
shrunk down because those are usually done in normal people who you're not going to treat with chemotherapeutic agents. And what the FDA does is they allow um, more um, more people enrolled um, under tight control still, uh, but basically who have the disease or disorder. So that, that first set of studies is to make sure that there's nothing remarkably bad that happens. And that's all you can tell, really, in those first studies. Even though someone might do well, statistically speaking, you're really only going to learn if there's something bad. By the time you get to the second phase, you start to have a little bit more confidence. Um, and, and what you're learning there is whether there's biologic activity. So you might go from tens of patients now to hundreds of patients. And in that, you're looking at biologic activity. What happens when imaging tests are done on a tumor or blood markers of a tumor to see if those are going in the right direction? And then you would go to a phase three trial, which typically is looking at the effect on lifespan, on survival, um, as well as quality of life measures. Uh, and if you're going tens in the phase one studies, hundreds in the phase two, you're looking at thousands in the phase three. And all those experiences together are what, review, what are reviewed by regulators to decide whether a drug or a device uh, can be marketed and used more broadly by docs in practice. And, and so when you hear about something being fast-tracked, what does that mean? There are a number of different labels that are used um, that have been brought into play by different laws to help get the FDA more authority to move fast when it seems from the data that that's appropriate. So I used pancreatic cancer as an example before. Let's just stick with that for a moment. But any cancer that's – I mean, not that any cancer isn't bad. They're all bad. But pancreatic cancer, there's a different kind of urgency because – uh, unfortunately, many people die within weeks or a few months. So in a disorder or disease like that, what you end up having is a, a bias for the agency, not specifically for pancreatic cancer, but things that are really bad, a bias that the agency has to say, well, if there's something that's more promising here, we really need to move fast because every month longer that it takes us to make a decision, if it's going to turn out to be a good product, an effective product, that means people are dying in that month that otherwise might not if we can move faster. And so there's fast track. There's something called breakthrough therapy. There are a few different designations that allow the FDA to prioritize resources so that the processes of review can move faster. And is and is there is there a particular threshold, or is there a, it, it, it has to be a clinical signal that would say to the FDA, this is really a breakthrough, or we think this is really a breakthrough? Well, I think that there are people who believe that they know how to define it, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's so easy to define, especially mm-hmm. when you're looking at data that are very early in your phase one trials, as an example, or even in phase two. So that it really is a process of reviewing the data between the people who are the developers and the FDA to see whether there's really a consistent a consistent picture. So that if I'm taking um, a, a drug, as a, I'll use a cardiology example. Say I'm taking a drug um, that uh, works but makes me keeps me alive but makes me a little dizzy, not so much that I can't take it. And somebody comes along with a drug that operates by the same mechanism, but for, and it's just as effective, but it doesn't cause dizziness. It, it would not make sense for the FDA to take its limited resources and prioritize the review of that drug 
because there's already a drug that keeps me alive. So I'm a little dizzy. Look at it. I can complain, but that's not a big deal compared to people who are really suffering. And so it's it's really a matter of looking at what the resources are, what product, what the, you know, the state of the data are, what the condition is, what alternatives there are. I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors that the agency will discuss and has published in various documents that are used, but it's not a simple equation. Like, uh, you can just pull down the equation, plug in some numbers, and know whether it's going to be designated as a breakthrough or a fast track. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what, do you, what do you think about... Um drugs that are not approved here in the United States, but they might be available to patients in another country. We hear from patients a lot that they're um, upset by that, that they'd like to have access to the the same type of technologies available to them if they were outside of the United States. I think that's an extremely good point for people to raise constantly, raise that question. Why is this happening? Because it's an, it's a really important discussion and important to understand it and and I can give you some insight. There are some countries, but I, I think that most countries that do a rigorous job of evaluation of new medical products have as part of their mindset how do we make sure that we don't just let everybody have access if we're not sure it's safe. If we're not sure if it's effective, I mean, once we know, then it's a whole other issue. It's just a financial calculation. But it's really, it's really about making sure that when there is too much uncertainty in what a product is going to do, you, as a, if you're looking at public health, you don't want thousands and thousands of people being exposed before you know. What you want to do as a public health expert is to say, I need to have at least some degree of certainty before I let this out on the population without controls, because my job as a public health leader is to protect the public health. So with that in mind, understand that there are countries, especially if you look at Europe, that have a lower amount of evidence required to get a product uh, to the point where it's allowed to be sold. But remember that they can do that because they also have limits on uh, getting, uh, allowing a product to be paid for. So they limit the exposure on another level. So you can go to Europe and say, oh, I want this product because it's on the market, but maybe it's on the market because it's shown to be safe, but nobody really has any idea whether it's effective. And whether that's better than trying something experimental here in the U.S. is a difficult question that you should think twice about before you jump on a plane and go get the other therapy. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to kind of, I want to break it down for our listeners. So what you're saying is, is if there's something available outside the United States before you go pursue that, in particular, you might want to have a conversation to see if there's something that is in a clinical trial here um, that you would be able to have uh, access to. Right, because the clinical trial therapy might actually be one that has a better knowledge base, a better level of confidence about what it's going to do for you than something that's on the market in another country. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we've been talking a lot about innovation as it relates to solutions for patients. So given what we've talked about in terms of the review and approval process and the timelines around that, do you see any innovations regarding the review and approval process? So are we doing something to shorten this timeline? Yes. There's a, there are several initiatives that either have been launched or were certainly uh, being reviewed while I was there that I would expect to be launched in the coming years that um, once you test them a few times and see whether they actually are achievable, start to open up 
the the path for others to to launch. So Fast Track started that way. The Breakthrough Therapy started that way. That's what we did with the Innovation Pathway. There's a great deal of interest by scientists at the FDA to figure out ways to make the right decision about a new product and do it faster and better. Mm-hmm. And, and and maintain safety for for patients. We exactly. have got to take without a quick, sacrificing. Correct. Right. We've got to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation on innovation with Dr. Jonathan Sackner Bernstein. Today's episode has been brought to you in part by Greenville Health System, where we have a cancer support community and Greenville Cancer Center. AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue. Please join us for our final segment right after this commercial break. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and I am Linda House, Executive Vice President for External Affairs at the Cancer Support Community. I'm your guest host today, sitting in for Kim Tebaldo. 
And we have with us Dr. Jonathan Sackner Bernstein, who is an internationally recognized clinical researcher and an expert in development and regulation of medical products and also a practicing physician. Uh, We've been talking a lot about creating an environment that fosters innovation and also regulations that would allow innovations to be used for treatment of of patients or diagnosis of patients um, as soon as possible while maintaining safety. Before we get to the end of this episode, I'd like to talk about some of the current innovations um, that you think are exciting in healthcare, just generally, and um, specifically in cancer, if you have some thoughts around those. Um, How about devices? Are there any devices that are uh, catching your attention? Well, back in 2008, I saw... Uh, a 60 Minutes episode that I thought was really remarkable for for several reasons, and it was about a device that was being tested in animals. It, right now, it's still being tested in animals, um, but moving further along, uh, which was uh, based on an idea created, um, invented, um, identified, whatever the right term is, by a patient, um, uh, a patient who had a background in in radio field thought about the idea of creating a device to treat cancer with radiofrequency energy non-invasively. And it's, uh, there's some basis for it, but it was a little bit crazy and a little bit unusual. And I think that if that ends up going into clinical trials, it'd be something I'm very excited about. I've actually uh, ended up working a little bit with them just so it's transparent, but that's really caught my eye. And then in the drug space, I think we've all seen articles written over the past couple of, last year and a half or so that have really become more commonplace about a a way of treating cancer that is referred to as immunotherapies, where essentially the drugs are uh, allowing the body's immune system to attack the cancer in a way that uh, is looking as though it's going to be really powerful. And there was just another example um, presented at a, at a, in, a, in a paper and in a meeting just this last week. So I, I think that there are lots of innovations that are, that are out there that have promised. The immunotherapies are actually on the market already, so that's an innovation that's already changing lives. Well, and if I could uh, take the prerogative since I have the microphone, you know, one, one of the, the technologies that I think are particularly interesting are the, are the CAR T-cells yep. for um, immunotherapy. And I would just encourage our listeners, if, you, if you're interested in that, you can search capital C, capital A, capital R, hyphen T as in Tom. And um, that's really interesting technology uh, for liquid tumors, I believe, at this point primarily. Yep. Yep. But there are also, and there are other immunotherapies that you can look at. Uh, they, they, there are several studies now in uh, melanoma, which is once it's advanced, is a is a uh, really a, a terrible situation to be in having that. Uh, so I think the field, whether we're talking about cell therapies or drugs, uh, really is is one that uh, is worth bringing up at the next meeting you go to with your doctor if you have a, a cancer that you're affected by right now. Mm-hmm. That's great. And a lot of clinical trials to the point of investigating what clinical trials would be available for you. That's definitely one of those places where uh, you could get access. Yes. So when you think about healthcare, where do you think that we still need the most innovation? The most innovation? It seems as though in healthcare we need innovation everywhere. We need innovation 
for therapies so that we can take a, a, a life-threatening or a life-ending condition and convert it to a chronic disease the way that um, insulin-dependent diabetes was transformed with the discovery of insulin over a century ago. Uh, we can do that. That's great. If we can figure out how to transform the way we deliver care so that uh, people understand what's happening and can make better decisions, I think that would be a place ripe for innovation. Uh, and then one of the areas that nobody wants to talk about, and certainly even though I want to talk about it, I have no idea how to solve it, is how can we innovate in, in, the, um, in the period of life where we're at the end of the road, where, of course, human nature is one where we want to hold on to life or we're willing to try anything, yet there's a certain point where all the scientific data say that perhaps we're not being fair to society by spending healthcare resources. I have no idea what the right answer is. Certainly, it's not to stop or prevent people from having care, but that's an area where uh, the only mistake is not tackling the problem, not discussing the problem. Well, and of course, the thing I would throw into that would be in the area of psychosocial care and how do we continue to advance innovations around learning about the whole patient and how does that apply to their, the biology of their, of their disease. And I know that's something that you believe in as well. Yeah, we've discussed that before, and, and that's part of, and I'm glad you bring it up as a specific item because that's part of what I meant by the second part, which is, you know, empowering patients and making sure they understand what's going on. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a situation that I think is very, cancer is a situation that's very different than treating a patient with cardiac disease, um, and it requires, even though both require that extra layer of, of factoring in not only the effect on the psychosocial situation, but the psychosocial situation's effect on the condition. Um, probably even more important in, in cancer than it is in any other area. Mm-hmm. Well, we just released a study on Sunday, as a matter of fact, at the American Society of Hematology, where we looked at patients in our CML registry, our chronic myeloid leukemia registry. And when you combine the factors of patients with financial burden alongside um, an increased risk for depression, the patients who had both of those factors as a part of their um, psychosocial profile were twice as likely to not be adherent to their medication. So, you know, here people have access to an innovative therapy that could potentially cure their disease, but not managing the psychosocial pieces of financial burden and depression, and particularly layering on that depression, you run the risk of, of people not taking their medications, which definitely affects outcomes. Yeah, that, that's profound. I'm, I'm glad you're going to be releasing that, and, and hopefully docs will pay attention so that that's part of the focus in care. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's absolutely something we could do something about early. So we are winding up our show today. Thanks again for being here with us. But before I let you off the hook completely, I'd like for you to, to just tell our listeners, and I might give you more than just one, what do you think is the most important thing we should know about innovation or a couple things that we should know about innovation? Well, I think that, that what's really critical to recognize is that if we sit back and wait for someone else to come up with an innovation, uh, we're not actually fulfilling our potential or fulfilling our responsibility. People are innovators. People come up with great ideas, 
great ways to handle a situation every day. Just think about what you're doing when you're dealing with your family or your friends or at work. You have a new problem. You figure out a solution. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that that idea of radio frequency energy was so interesting to me is it was a patient who came up with the idea. He was the innovator. He was the innovator about technology. doesn't mean that somebody out there listening can't be the innovator about how to take uh, take into account the psychosocial situation of a patient. So as long as we start to recognize that it's, uh, innovation is not just for the young or for the professionally trained, and that innovation is something we can all do, especially as we have uh, a little bit of experience under our belt um, and we have the motivation there for if cancer is touching us, then I think the opportunity for great things just explodes and the impact would be wonderful. Great. Excellent, excellent guidance for us. So thank you again so much for making time to come back on the show with us today and for shedding a light on this subject and for the work that you're doing to spread, to spread the word beyond the walls of the United States or the borders of the United States into uh, other areas. So just quickly before you go, tell us where we can see your TED Talk. So if you go to YouTube and search on my name, Sackner Bernstein, or search on TEDx Brussels, all is one word, uh, you'll see the talk. It's not too late to make a difference, and um, I think you'll agree with me that it's not too late to make a difference. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you join us today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am Linda House, the Executive Vice President of External Affairs, and sitting in for Kim Tebaldo today, who will be with you next week. As mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our program, our programs, including finding an affiliate near you, you can find that information on our website, which is www.cancersupportcommunity.org, or feel free to call us toll-free at 888-793-9355. And as a reminder, all of our services are free. Again, that number is 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.